Hello and welcome to episode 85 of the Crude Street Podcast. This week, as has been our wont on occasion, we will discuss awards. You can consider this to be advance warning, time to stop the download on your iPod, time to run away and make tea, maybe possibly a chance to engage with the whole awards process for a minute. Because after all, do we not all belong to a field that has more awards than any other in existence? This week, joining us for the first time since, oh, about Christmas of 2010 in Bristol is Cheryl Morgan. Good evening, Cheryl. Good morning, Jonathan. Thank you. And somewhere in deepest, darkest Chicago, able to look out the window on that one of those that enormous lake of theirs, possibly stalked by Kelsey Grammer. And uh, you never know. Good morning, Hi. Gary. I'm good evening, Jonathan. And as a matter of fact, I'm looking out on what is looking to be six to eight inches of nice snow. And the wind is howling, and it's turning dark, and the traffic is sliding off the highway. A wonderful night to be inside with a warm, burning podcast. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> and and, and, and a, a glass of red wine, I hope, Gary. It's in my hand at the moment. How did you know? <laughs> well, it, it's, I was reminded um, by Paul Graham Raven that there's a Coot Street t- tradition of uh, having a drink or two during the recording so I have availed myself of a, a small glass of fine finished Terva. Ah, well. You will forgive me, having spent a considerable portion of yesterday afternoon emptying the contents of my stomach forcefully, I shall not join you. I've, I have a rather tepid glass of water, and that will do me, thank you very much. You, you are forgiven, Jonathan. You, you don't have to have pink drinks. Ah, uh, well. Actually, this is the thing that always throws the podcast when we're actually together. I mean, it works very well, but there's also that thing where... We're so used to the time difference thing. I'm getting up, I'm drinking coffee, Gary's having wine. We're all a little bit off that it just kind of makes it odd for a little while to be doing it face-to-face, doesn't it? It's a strange feeling when we do these, when we did these at, at Reno, yeah. uh, to actually be reading the nonverbal signals of, of the person you're talking to. Uh, so I don't, know whether, uh, I don't know whether it increases or decreases the level of spontaneity, but it certainly is... It, it, it's very strange. Like you're not supposed to be here. Like exactly. why, why don't you go in the other room so we can do a real podcast? Yeah, I, I found it easier to um, record those podcasts when I wasn't actually looking at you. Mm-hmm. If you know what I mean. It sounds really weird. It sounds like a yeah, let's not look at Gary because well, it's Gary. No, it's just a simple case of the weird way we record this in this in the, here in the you know the 21st century where bandwidth still isn't quite high enough. And none of us are quite willing enough to do it all on video. You know, I considered video, but then I realized you know, I'd have to create a little studio environment behind me, or you'd see the catastrophic mess that my office is. Oh, no, we, we, we can't do video. It's, um, <laughs> I, I've just got this one little room, and the, the camera would, would see all around it, including the, the embarrassing collection of chrome things in the corner. <laughs> Wow, you, you you touch on the subject. I, I mentioned sort of shambles. You mentioned Chrome things. It's a natural segue into one of the main topics of our, our conversation this morning, which is, of course, the annual Hugo Awards, which will be coming up this September, as, as it has done low these many, many years. I forget what number it is. It must be like the 60-something Hugo Awards coming up. What was it 59, So it's 59? 59th Hugo? I- I'm, I'm not counting. Um, <laughs> yeah. And well, no one has won a year. I've so. stopped winning one every year. I've, I've stopped counting how many there have been. 
Ah. Now, I, I guess we should all allow that we have, well, not all of us. Certainly, we've all been involved in Hugos in the past in some way or another. We've been fortunate enough to be nominated. Some of us, Cheryl, have been very fortunate enough to win. So we all love the awards and everything else. So it's just what we're here to do, I guess, is just talk about where the Hugos are at in 2011 for us. Uh, the nominating ballot is out, so I'll be able to touch on that. It's that kind of a thing, isn't it, that we're going to be doing today? Uh, indeed, and uh, we, we have a few questions from um, people on Twitter about the potential rule changes that are coming up this year. Hang on a second. We should, we should begin by reminding people what the deadline is for making right. nominations. Sorry about March, that. What's the date in March for the, uh, for the deadline for making nominations? I always... The deadline for the for nominations is Sunday, March the 11th, so there's still a little bit of time to get out there and read stuff. I must admit, I don't know how you guys are, I got the email from ShyCon on the 11th of January this year uh, saying you may, nom may nominate because you were absolutely clinically insane and went to Reno, and I got that itch. I wanted to do it right away. I wanted to fire up the ballot, I wanted to look, I wanted to get it done because I love nominating for these awards, which is really crazy, but I do. And, you know, this year, there are like 16 categories, which is a lot. Do we need 16, Hugo, Cheryl? Um, I'm not sure that, that we do. Um, but um, everybody is always very keen to, um, to add other categories so that other people can get recognized, which is kind of understandable. It, it by the way, we don't have the, uh, the most uh, awards in the world. The romance um, genre has far more awards than do we they? do. They do. They, yes. do. they have wonderful categories. I've got a friend who lives down the hallway who was a judge for the Romance Writers of America Award. And they have categories that have to do with plots and themes. Um, mm -hmm. Best Gothic with Strong Romantic Elements. Uh, <laughs> best Gothic without Strong Romantic Elements. Best Romantic with Strong Gothic Elements. So we could, we could like, like we could like Best Science Fiction Story without Science in it. Um, That's absolutely, yes. Best, best science fiction story that everybody says isn't science fiction. Mm -hmm. Ah, yes, of course. And then the, you know, that classic. Best science fiction story with a girl. Best science fiction story without a girl. Best science fiction with a girl on the cover. Well, you see, that would probably be the best science fiction without a girl, but still, you know. But yes. And I shan't even get yeah. into, into, into Velps and everything else, because that just gets too too complicated. Um... But yes, no, Hugo's, Hugo's, Hugo's. Now, there are all kinds of questions around this, year, this year's Hugo's, as there are every single year. Um, do we want to start talking about the stuff that's left over from last year? Because there's a batch of, well, there's one major motion that got passed, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Cheryl, at the last business meeting, that regarded further surgery to the semiprosine category. Um, there was indeed, yes. Um, the semi-prosine category has been the subject of debate for years and years and years. And um, the um, the main question really is is how you define a semi-prosine. Mm. The the theory of it is is really quite simple in that um, you you have fanzines where there's no money involved at all. People sure. are just doing it for the love of it. And you have professional magazines like Asimov's and Analog and, and FNSF, which are, are very clearly businesses. And then you have a whole bunch of magazines in the middle, which include Locus, Weird Tales, Lightspeed, Clark's World, mm. uh, and so on, where the the magazines may um, you know, charge money for what they do, 
where some of the people involved may get some money for some of what they do, mm. but it's not necessarily um, a, a proper commercial enterprise. Yeah. Um, now, obviously, this is something that's sort of grown up over the years. Uh, I think everybody accepts that the original reason for having the semi-pro zine was to get Locus out of the fanzine category. Um, mm. But um, once the category was created, um, we discovered that there were lots of magazines that actually fitted it. Um, if only people could decide exactly what the boundaries are. And being fans, people are very keen on, on boundaries. So, yeah, they like to say something is one thing or another thing. And that's proving remarkably difficult. Now, I mean, just historically, wasn't it around 2007 or so, I guess, that this blew up again? And, you know, because Locus had been, uh, frankly, winning it quite often. And the, not, not only that, but the nominating pool had appeared quite low. And there was a, a promotional campaign to make people more aware of semi-pro zines and that seemed to shake up the ballot it changed the kind of people who were winning which was a great thing weird tales got recognized clark's world got recognized all this sort of thing so i mean didn't that resolve a chunk of the problem but just by making people aware and making the the cat the category seem more vital and alive um well you would have thought so but um there are some people who desperately wanted to get rid of the category and they still want to get rid of the category um or at least they um uh, they still want to have some sort of hard and fast rule. It, it's absolutely unequivocal. And the, I'll try that again sometime later. <laughs> where everything fits. And, and you know, there, there's been a, a, a WASFIS committee going on for, for some time. There are people on that who believe that, that there should be a, a very clear dividing line. Either money is involved or money is not involved. Uh, and that um, any, anything other than that is simply uh, some sort of trick to uh, get but, people uh, out of the professional categories. But, but isn't the problem with that that it requires nominees to disclose their financial details? Um, that's one of the, um, the the big problems with actually um, creating any sort of, of category of, of based on financial um, mm. dealings. Um, uh, another one, of course, is, is that there used to be this thing of how many copies, and that was fine when things were only paper, but now that most of the uh, nominees are online magazines, it's very difficult to, to know what readership is. So the the proposal that we have in front of us at the moment is to remove from the semi-prosine category any magazine owned and operated by a company with full-time staff. <laughs> There's only one of those, isn't there? How many? Uh, yes. No. Really? No, I, I, well, I don't think so. Well, it depends. I mean, there's definitely Locus. Yes. Um, there was definitely Lightspeed. I'm not entirely sure what the situation is now that John Joseph Adams has bought Lightspeed from Prime. Because Lightspeed. Oh, Prime I mean, because is John Joseph Adams with respect? I'm not trying to pry into his details, but is John Joseph Adams a company? Um, I'm I'm not entirely sure. Um, but if if he's basically a you know full time science fiction uh, editor, then he probably is. Um, on the other hand, you know Neil Clark has a day job. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure what the situation is with Weird Tales. Again, it used to be the, the situation that Weird Tales definitely would have been taken out of the category, but now it's been bought up by somebody else. So I'm, I'm not sure what's happening there. I think it's just Marvin Kaye doing it out of his house, isn't it? Kind of a thing. Um, if indeed he's doing it at all. 
Yeah, well, but, but, but if he does, I think. So yeah. there's going to be all kinds of fuzziness caused by this new clarity then. Well, there's also right, confusion. But the, sorry, what was that, Gary? It seems I've always been confused over uh, conflating magazines that publish some fiction, magazines that publish no fiction, magazines that mix fiction with nonfiction. Um, what, the real question is, what is comparable to what? And I think, Cheryl, you're right that you can't, at, in, in this environment, draw clear lines between those various categories. No. Uh, and this is always the problem with any sort of, of catch-all category. I mean, there there are people who like everything to be nice and clear and would like to have a separate category for fiction magazines and a separate category for non-fiction magazines and presumably a separate category for magazines which contain both fiction and non-fiction. Hmm. Uh, but, you know, the, you go that way and you, you end up with 200 separate Hugo Awards and nobody really wants that. You could have, Everyone could get one at the door on the way in. <laughs> I'm sure that would make some people very happy. You can get it in the grab. It might, the might, put the, might put the price of Worldcom membership up a little bit, though. <laughs> oh, still, mm. what a souvenir to take home. Um, mm. Okay, so this means there's, there's a proposal on the table, which, well, in fact, no, there was a proposal on the table last year, which was passed by the business meeting, and which, if it's not overthrown this coming uh, convention, will become the rules. That's correct, yes. So this is one of those things where uh, any rule change has to be passed in two successive world cons. And the, the idea there is to prevent um, people from one particular part of the world having undue influence. Um, so, sure. Well, except it's always North America, pretty much. So, Oh, not always, no. Sometimes it goes to um, you know, Melbourne. I remember being there only two years ago. Okay, well, well, all that said, do you support these changes to the semi-prosian category? Do you think they make sense? Um, I, I, I think um, this is probably the uh, the best thing that has, has come out of it. Mm -hmm. um, I've not been directly involved. I know that Neil Clark has spent a lot of time talking to people. Um, and, um, you know, I, uh, I trust his judgment on this. He's supportive of this. So um, if he thinks the best, it's the best that we can get out of all the discussions that the committee has had, then... I'm happy to go along with it. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, some magazines will be thrown into the professional category. Um, well, it, there is, of course, no professional magazine category, but the editors of the magazines no longer eligible can be edited, can be nominated for editor short form. And that's why so this year... I, sorry, sorry, you can see Cheryl, sorry. I, I was going to say, it would be lovely to see Liza get a nomination in her own right. Now, what I was going to say was, this is, of course, uh, why Clark's World have removed themselves from eligibility for the, or for consideration, have declined, so they'll decline, decline nomination for Best Semi-Prosine and put forward the editorial team for Best Editor Short Form in this year's Hugo's as a statement of support for the proposal. Um, I'm not entirely sure why Neil decided to uh, withdraw. I mean, we have won a couple of them now, and... Mm -hmm. um, it's um, you know, the um, the first one you win, everybody loves you. The second one you win, people raise their eyebrows. And the third one you win, everybody says, "Oh no, it's them again." <laughs> um, so you know, they're from, there are they're they're always pressures on people who've who've won. Um, but um, yeah, again, uh, it will be nice to see Neil get the nod. I mean, he's he's stories that he has. Uh, published have been nominated for both Hugo and the World Fantasy Award, 
and therefore you would have thought he would be a contender for for best editor. It'll be very interesting to see how it plays out. I, I obviously I have a a stake in that race myself, and I do look at how the nominations tend to pan out. So it'd be very interesting, and also means making people aware that there is a potential change or is a change, and that they can do this. Um, so it'll be interesting. I mean, personally, I, I have a different solution to the whole problem. But since I'm not willing to go to 100 million business meetings and fight everybody forever to actually achieve my ver- view of the future, I figure I'm going to go along with what everybody else does and you know just smile and be happy. Will you go to the you business meeting, Gary? You're not even going to share us what your view of the future is? I mean, this is... If it was me, I would get rid of both of the editor Hugos. Out of best fanzine, best semi-prosine, best magazine, and wh- wh- whoever won the best novel, the editor of that novel would get the Hugo for best novel editor, just like you, uh, uh, that the Academy's the produ- you know the producer picks up the best picture Oscar. Mm-hmm. So that you know, like let's say Connie, I mean, Connie Willis won for All Clear or something. Well, then I think it was Anne Grohl or whoever her editor would be would automatically have got an editor Hugo with that. And the argument, the argument for it is, which no one will agree, is none of you have any idea what an editor does on anything anyway. None of you. Nobody can tell me what Sheila Williams did or didn't do on a particular story. Uh, nobody, can, n- nobody could say what I did or didn't do on a particular story in a book of mine. You can look at the package, you can look at the book, but you, mm. can, you don't actually know what's been done. And so at best, you are judging the editor as a assembling slash commissioning editor which is a very superficial level for judging it. So I say, since it's something you can't actually know what anybody's doing, take it out of the scale altogether. Um, oh, and the other, one other thing I'd have done is turn one of those two editing Hugos into a best anthology Hugo. That way you're recognizing all of the scope of endeavor without ever getting into the issue of, does anybody know what a best editor does anyway? Yeah, well, best, best anthology is one of those things that is, uh, people keep suggesting it, um, but the problem with that is that people will have a tendency to vote best anthology on the basis of the story in it that they happen to like, um, and you'll end up with uh, a particularly good story potentially you know, winning itself in its short story category and getting a, another one for the anthology that it was in. Isn't that just um, non-provable assumption, Cheryl? Um yeah, most of these things are non-provable assumptions, but that's the the argument that will be raised against it, um, and that has been raised against it every time somebody has suggested it. I don't think it's a very convincing argument, but that's just me anyway. I that that were I king of the world for a day, that's what I would do. And since I'm not, and since I'm certainly not going to, whilst I may or may not go to a hundred million world cons, I'm not going to go to a hundred million business meetings and try and. turn people to i'm just grateful somebody's willing to do it well i i'm not able to go to most of them these days so rely upon other people to um go to business meetings on my behalf will you be voting on this issue gary um i'm not passionate about this issue i mean i I, I, i'd love to have a hugo award and i envy people who have hugo awards Uh, i don't think that one ought to arrange one's career around trying to get one no Uh, or, or, or to try to you know, organize, organize something. I, I, do, I do think there's been a consistent sort of philosophy among these various um, emendations or proposed emendations to the Hugo Awards that, that are, seem to me to be consistently uh, intended to uh, give somebody a shot who hasn't previously had a shot. Um, and unfortunately, in order to do that, you are reducing other people's chances. 
so there's there there is this sense of of, of uh, Tea Partyism that comes comes about where let's let's all organize and 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 make ourselves available for awards, but then somebody else becomes unavailable for that award, and then there's another movement a few years later to undo that. <laughs> ah, well, we shall see what well, happens. And, that's and they, democracy they for you, Gary. <laughs> it is indeed. I mean, this is the argument I had with a, a very good friend of mine about the Hugos, who was getting very agitated about about the uh, the Hugos, the results, whatever it was. And the point I made to them was, it is incredibly democratic in its own way. If you're willing to sh you know, sort of show up and involve yourself for a whole bunch of time, you can change it um, or have a chance at changing it and be part of the process that decides it. And if you don't want to do that, well, it's kind of, yeah, stop complaining. But it's also culturally bound. It also, as Cheryl was mentioning, that most of them are in North America, but yeah. they're not. And there are Hugos, uh, I remember in... Um, uh, Glasgow a few years ago, wasn't it? Glasgow that uh, uh, the Cambridge Companion to Science Fiction won a Hugo Award. I'm fairly okay. certain that would not happen at a North American convention. You never know. Huh. Still, anyway, semi-prosian, that's interesting. The other one, uh, there are a couple other issues on the ballot I'm aware of, and they may come up in questions, but we'll see. The one, on, one of the ones on my mind is the best graphic story, which I, ah, yes. which I believe is what we would call an endangered species. It is, yes. Um, when the category was first created, it was created with what's called a sunset clause. And basically what that means is that at some point in the future, the category would go away unless people actively voted to keep it. Now, that sunset clause expires this year. So unless the members of the business meeting this year vote to keep graphic story, then this will be the last year in which it's awarded. Now, isn't it seen to be somewhat moribund? Really? Well, yeah, the, um, the, the category has been won by the same uh, people three years running, the, the only three years it's, it's been in existence, as I recall, and they've won by quite a hefty margin as well, I, I believe. Um, yeah. Also, we, we've been getting some fairly negative press from people who are actually in the comics industry. That um, mm -hmm. we uh, we have not to put too fine a point on it. Been laughed at. Is that, because, is that because it's a, you know, a, a, a laughable kind of ballot put together by uninformed people to be crass and unpleasant about it, or is it just um, because we don't like the kind of things they like? And hey, look, they've got the Eisner Awards; they can worry about it themselves. Yeah, that that's very hard to say, but I, I think it is definitely the case that the people who vote in the Hugos do not um, read very many comics or graphic novels. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I guess it, it, it's sort of a equivalent of maybe if, um, if the Eisner Awards had a category for best science fiction novel and it kept being won by things like movie novelizations sure sure I, I can understand that i guess the, the, I, mean, I, I don't think we're we're quite that bad because you know we've had things like fables and the unwritten and, and whatever who've been on the list and sure. actually genius is a, a pretty good um graphic novel um yeah. but well, um at the same time um we we are getting this negative feedback from people who are, are in the comics business 
Well, well, setting that aside is relevant or not. I mean, because <clears throat> after all, this is our awards. This is the Science Fiction Fields Awards. We get to feel as warm and fuzzy about it as we want to. And I've, I dare say that at some point the TV people or the movie people might equally look at us and go, well, that's a strange choice, isn't it? Um, so that, that doesn't really hold the day for me overly. But in my own life, as you may be aware if you look on Twitter and whatever else, I have actually started reading graphic stories in the last few months following the, the acquisition of my iPad. And I hear more and more people doing so. So I don't know whether there will be an increased interest in, in this in coming years as a result of increased comics reading. It's kind of hard to say. What what I can say is for the last two years, people have been making a concerted effort to educate the electorate about graphic novels. Um, so two years ago, Paul Cornell did a, a long series of blog, blog posts um, telling people about really good graphic novels that he thought ought to be contenders. And then last year, I did uh, a podcast with a bunch of comics experts and um, Britt Mandelow on Tor.com also did mm. a, a blog post encouraging people to, to read um, uh, a, a wider variety of, of graphic novels. And the results of the, um, the the category were pretty much the same as they had been the, the previous two years. So, <laughs> so is your it feeling seems that, that the, yeah. it, it seems that the um, efforts at uh, encouraging people to read more widely have not uh, succeeded terribly well. Hmm. Is it your feeling that it's a category that should go? Um, I, I think right now that there's not um, not sufficient interest amongst the voters to sustain it as a viable category. Were you going to say something, Gary? Um, uh, I, I guess I was going to ask if if that's not an issue with a lot of categories. When you look at the number of nominations in different categories and get down to the one which I end up in once in a while, nonfiction, there are very few nominations. Uh, and that, and maybe if, if you get into a category where there are a limited number of nominations, it's very possible for a special interest group to, to, to sway that, which is unfortunate, but does that make it theoretically an invalid category? Um, you know, I, I don't think it's particularly a question of special interest groups um, swaying things. There are enough people participating in the Hugos now that um, it might be possible for a special interest group to... Um, get somebody on the ballot, but I certainly don't think that um, they could uh, get a winner. Um, you know, Girl Genius won because large numbers of science fiction fans really, really love that comic. Sure, sure, which is great, and that's how it should be, frankly. But um, is is one of the real questions that when you look at, say, I mean, last year in Reno, they had the biggest voter turnout pretty much in the history of the awards, I believe. Uh, and... I believe the best graphic story number of votes and nominations were amongst the lowest in the awards, suggesting that there's just no real interest in it or not enough interest. Well, I um, I have the numbers. Yeah. Uh, just take a little while for me to open sure, up sure. the trial and, well, um, and look. The other thing which is interesting about that award compared to the um, the dramatic adap the, the dramatic adaptation awards, the the long form, the short form. These are two areas in which the science fiction world intersects with why there's really a much larger world out there. Mm. Uh, graphic novels are, 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 are a huge industry. Uh, and to some extent, the question, do we need it, is, is, is a relevant question. I mean, I always wonder, do we really, 
uh, need the uh, the long form dramatic adaptation award. Which and, and, and Jonathan, when you mentioned that uh, Hollywood is looking at these awards, they're not. They're not they no. barely know that they exist. Oh, I know, I know. But no, I was just saying, were they to look, you know, they might. Were they to look? Uh, and the real point was that whether or not the, the mainstream comics community regards the, the Hugo, uh, the best graphics story Hugo as a serious thing or not, doesn't strike me as being particularly germane. It's whether the Hugo or voting audience is participating, interested, active, and in touch with the results it's getting itself. And the impression I have is that the Hugo nominating and voting community isn't interacting with the category a great deal. And that's the, the real issue. Uh, and if, if it's, you know, maybe it should be allowed, sadly, to go into a sunset phase if um, there isn't enough interest for it. I mean, personally, now that I'm getting interested and I would like to vote for things that I'm reading, and I will nominate this year, um, and I do think it seems fairly insane that Why the Last Man didn't do better, but um, given all of that, you know, if, if the community as a whole doesn't much care, then it doesn't much care. And the Hugo, certainly the comics fraternity don't seem to be lacking for awards of their own. Well, that's my point. Is the, I don't think the comics world or the graphic novel world would notice the absence of a Hugo Award in its annual calendar of events. I doubt if they would pay much attention to it at all, frankly. Yeah, fair enough. I, I say that as somebody who does not read graphic novels. I know... People have suggested we do a graphic novel podcast, and I would certainly try to read a bunch of stuff to catch up, but sure. it's a little bit like not being a science fiction reader and, and, and suddenly yeah. coming in. How, uh, how much catching up is there to do? Yeah. Certainly. Well, my own problem is I don't like superhero stories, particularly. Uh, that's an issue with me as well. And that means that I am sifting through modern comics and graphic novels, and there's a great deal of excellent work. But it does take a little bit of sifting because all of the immediate stuff on offer is Superman and Batman and Batgirl and Bat Babies and all that stuff. It's, it's true. And, it's, and uh, I, I would wonder, if I started reading graphic novels this year, would I feel qualified to vote next year? Oh, stop that. You don't have to be qualified to vote, Gary. You just have to have a passion. Well, okay. Uh, that's another point I was getting at. It's, uh, Cheryl, you were going to say something. Sorry, I, I was going to report on the numbers because yes. actually I found something rather interesting. Okay. Well, I had a look first at the final ballot. Yes. Um, which, as you know, there, there were about 2,000 people who participated in that. Mm. And uh, some of the categories, of course, most of those people took an interest in. There were over 1,800 people voted in Best Novel. Yeah. Now, Graphic Story, there were over 1,200 people who participated in that and that's a pretty good number it's around yeah. the same level as participated in related work that's 55% or so it's a lot more than participated in some of the fan categories Ooh. Mm. Um, on the other hand if you look at the nominating ballot mm. where about a thousand people participated in the process then um, again, you know, you, you get an awful lot of interest in novel and dramatic presentation sure. long form. Mm -hmm. But the number of people who nominated in graphic story was the second lowest. Only fan artist was lower. Okay. So how many people actually so, nominated? Hmm? How many people two, actually nominated? 287. Okay. 
So, so then, based on that, I'd be interested, um, I don't think there's time to go through it, particularly not live on the podcast, but <clears throat> to have seen how that's changed over the three-year period, whether there's an increase in both nominations and votes, percentage-wise against the compar- you know, the uh, baseline of that year, rather than getting its absolute numbers. Because it would be interesting to see if there's a growing percentage, well, maybe there is an argument to retain this, and maybe people should consider showing up to the business meeting and looking to extend it. Personally, if it was me, I'd be happy to see it extended another three years just to see whether there's more life in it than people are allowing. I think people yeah, maybe are I, getting distracted by the fact that some external people criticized it, and due to popularity, one particular winner kept winning. Yeah, I, I think that uh, if it does get extended, it will again be extended under a sunset clause. I think that's the only way it will go through. Mm. Um, you know, there And of course, there, there are, of course, conservatives within the... Um, the Worldcon community, as they're conservatives in any community, mm. who believe that you should only ever give Hugo's for uh, written fiction. So they, are, I'm sure, will be out to um, to get rid of all the fan that. categories. The fan um, categories no, they, a long time. Yeah, they they might um, they might keep fan writer and fanzine, um, but they definitely want to get rid of the dramatic presentation categories. Best person well, wins like, the machine. Okay. Not, not speaking of someone who is, is even politically knowledgeable enough to consider myself a conservative or a reactionary, a liberal, or a Trotskyite, uh, I think a lot of people look at the Hugo Awards historically and think, okay, uh, the fiction awards go back to the beginning of the Hugos. When you're looking at a Hugo novel, you can look at you know, uh, 60 years of Hugo novels, uh, and the same things with the short fiction categories. The other categories um, are, are, have less historical weight attached to them. Mm. And I, I think to some extent people feel those categories are therefore more malleable. They can be added or subtracted um, uh, as we want. But, but essentially, and, and, and your, uh, Cheryl, your uh, nomination and, and, and voting figures reflected this, the fiction categories are the ones that are the core of the Hugo Awards for many attendees of the convention. I think that's true. And it's mm-hmm. not going to change. No, that's not going to change. Okay. And now, a Cood Street disclaimer. At this point in the podcast, we're about to discuss something where we may be seen to have a conflict of interest. There's not very much we can do about this because this is a fanzine kind of thing. We're all fans as well, and we're all involved. But we do want you not to, to, to know that we're aware of it. So, this year, after that little out-of-the-box out of segue... Uh, the Committee of ShyCon 7 exercised its right under Section 3.3.15, which I could, if necessary, recite to you. No, I couldn't. Of the Constitution of the World Science Fiction Society to create a single, extra, one-time-only Hugo category. And they chose, in the interest of not confusing anybody, to create the best fan cast, which they describe as for any non-professional audio or video casting with at least four episodes that had at least one episode released in 2011. The conflict of interest, for a start, purely, clearly is, ladies and gentlemen, that we put out 52 episodes of a entirely non-professional audio cast during 2011, so it, it does exist. You're listening to it. What do we think of this best fan cast c- category, guys? Well, Chris, uh, it, 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 I don't know anything about the politics. On, yeah. Even though I'm in Chicago, I'm not involved with the local committee. Is this uh, an effort or an experimental uh, gesture to remove podcasts from the fanzine category. That is exactly what it is. Um, we, we talked earlier on about the changes to the semi-prezine category, 
Mm. And equally, there was a motion which received first passage in Reno, uh, the purpose of which was to remove uh, podcasts, video casts, uh, and any other sort of casts um, that may be invented in the future from the fanzine category. And that's why the description of the thing is similar to description of a fanzine. It's aimed specifically at things that might be considered fanzines. Uh-huh. Mm. Now, setting aside the thing that I mean, you know, the, the, the glib sort of thing that occurs to me is, well, isn't that what you call the, the death knell of the fanzine category because you're basically ossifying it down to a, a smaller and smaller community, which I do not disrespect. It's been incredibly important over the history of uh, science fiction and is a vital and vi- vibrant thing in its own way. But nonetheless, it seems to be getting smaller and smaller as a print manifestation only. So is it, I mean, is this a smart idea? I mean, I look at it and I think it's confusing. In fact, I think when we started this, this before we started recording, Cheryl, we were talking about various things. And my experience when you talk, when I've ever spoken to an administrator of the Hugo Awards or spoken to you about them, the sort of thing they'll say is, well, when we decide whether something should be eligible here or eligible there, we try and follow the will of the voters because that's sort of the most important thing. But we also look to make sure that there isn't sort of conflicts and the ability to vote for two things in one place. Haven't they just created the chance for you to vote for two things in one place? Oh, they absolutely have. And um, you know, that that's a function of them choosing to trial this thing before it's actually been ratified. Um, if the Once the motion has been ratified, assuming that it is, then the um, anything that um, is a, a cast of some sort, including, of course, the one that we are talking on sure. at the moment would be removed from the fanzine category. But because that change hasn't been ratified, the Kid Street podcast and Galactic Suburbia and many other fine podcasts around the uh, the world are eligible for both best fanzine and best fancast for this year and this year only. That strikes me as remarkably, trying to be diplomatic because they're nice people, um, muddy thinking might be the polite way to put it. That's the way I see it too. Okay. I mean, it, it, that, that opens the possibility that one one podcast, and, and I'm certainly not referring to ours because, as you mentioned, there are many fine podcasts out there. But one podcast could win two Hugos. Yes, that that is entirely possible. Yes, we are reliant uh-huh. at this point on the, uh, the the good sense of the the voters, which I think is unlikely to happen because there is precedent for for this. Um, way back in, uh, was it 2005, I think, when we were spending a lot of time thinking about online magazines? Sure, yeah. There, mm-hmm. there was a trial of a best website category. That was mm, in Glasgow yes, in, yes. in 2005. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, Emerald City, which I was then editing and publishing, was nominated in both best fanzine and best website um, I was very happy about this um, because I got two mm-hmm. Hugo nominating pins instead of one. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I lost both of them, of course. Um, but <laughs> there were a lot of people who were deeply unhappy about this and felt it was, was unfair that I should be nominated in both categories. And after a great deal of discussion about websites, um, WUSFUS as a, an entity um, came down on the side of, of thinking that really that the media in which something is published shouldn't matter. That whether something is published on a piece of paper, whether it's published on a website, 
yeah. um, or whatever other type of um, publishing you happen to invent in the future, but it should still count as a book or as a fanzine or, or whatever. And uh, to my mind, uh, this fancast thing seems to be going a little bit against that. Yeah. Now, there, there is an argument for it where people will say, well, the skills required to create a podcast or um, a, a videocast are manifestly different from the skills required to create a fanzine, whether it be on paper or online. And there's a certain amount of argument for that. But at the same time, I think in the fan category, it's it's all pretty amateurish. Um, <laughs> um, That's us. You know, the the sort of skills involved in in fanish podcasts and um, video casts are nowhere near the, um, the the level of quality that you'd see in the dramatic presentation category, for example. Well, I was going to say, just to be irritating, isn't there actually a possibility, an outside possibility, of uh, something being eligible in three categories here, Cheryl? Couldn't something like an episode, let's say there was a one-shot off the thing of episode of, say, The Guild, uh, which is like three minutes long, done for no money, thrown out on the online, it's a best dramatic presentation short form, it's a best fan ca- cast, it's arguably a best fan scene. Is this madness? Um, I, That would be kind of hard to say, because I don't know anything about this Guild thing, but if it is indeed... Um, dramatized fiction then you know i think there is a possibility there yes oh well no the, the guild is um why do i why have i forgot the name the, uh, the actress from um oh serenity or buffy or something who's gone on and made her made her own amateur um videos and stuff that everybody loved the guild yeah uh, anyway Okay, well, that's that's sort of interesting. I mean, my my own feeling is I, I encourage everybody to be active and involved and informed, um, and I guess we'll all sort of vote as our consciences dictate. Now, yeah, sorry, Gary. I was going to say, have we gotten? Do we want to address some of the comments or? Questions? Well, we will, but I've got one more question before we before we go on to that, Gary. Ha ha ha! Because that is not the only category on my mind this oh, year. Okay. Oh, my. Uh, well, I'm curious what else you've got here. Um, so we might do this. We'll do the questions at the end if they're still germane. But let's talk best related work for a minute. Um, and I guess I'm curious. Does a best related work have to be printed? No. And the reason I ask this before I launch my own full-hearted, full-blooded campaign is I was thinking about the works of our mutual friends, uh, John Clute et al. at the Encyclopedia Science Fiction third edition beta testing website, which contains enormous volume of scholarship, and there has been some discussion as to, as to its eligibility. And I assume your answer would be, Cheryl, that yes, indeed, the SF Encyclopedia 3 is eligible in your understanding for the best related work, Hugo? Well, first of all, I should point out that last year, one of the nominees for Best Related Work was a podcast, a professionally produced podcast called Writing Excuses. Oh, yes. Um, the producers are Brandon Sanderson, Jordan Sanderson, Howard Taylor and Dan Wells. So very clearly, things that are not written are eligible. Um, equally, I think websites absolutely eligible. So the interesting thing um, about the encyclopedia, well, there are two interesting things, actually. The first one is that 
um, when people were considering websites, they were very concerned that the same website shouldn't become eligible year after year after year for essentially the same content. And um, you know, there are guidelines for ensuring that um, something is indeed a new work. Now, the current um, version of the encyclopedia is definitely um, you know, a new work from that point of view because there's an awful lot of new stuff to mm. it. Uh, the second edition of the encyclopedia, which I believe won a Hugo, was mm -hmm. uh, something like uh, 1.3 million words. And the uh, current online edition is well over 3 million words. Yes. Uh, so and there's a, a massive amount of new material there. The other in thing is that this is um, claimed to be a beta work, that you know they're, they're only partway there, it's not finished yet, mm -hmm. and that um, sometime next year, um, or, um, or later this year perhaps, it will be finished and there will be lots more words. So the question then is whether one should vote on it this year or, or next year. And I suspect the uh, the result of that will be that people will, will vote on it this year because that's when they first think about it. Sure. And then next year, even though a significant number of words have been added to it, they will be deemed not enough to make it a new work again. Well, I think the argument there, and we've talked about this before, and we've talked about it with John, as a matter of fact, is I mean, their goal, I believe, is October of this year to have uh, the complete revision made, which means that all the material from the second edition will be updated and revised in addition to all the new material. What complicates that is that there, as, you, as you've mentioned, there is as much new material now already as there was in the entire second edition. So it seems to me the question, and we are really getting down to a parsing of, of terminology here now, is what work means. What the word, when they say best related work, doesn't mean a completed work, which the encyclopedia's third edition presumably really won't be until October, or does it mean work like people are working at this and they deserve recognition <laughs> well there there is another way to to look at this um which i, I did uh, float with john but um i'm not sure that um i think i think he thinks it might be just too complicated is that um the hugos have always recognized the existence of part works mm. and this goes mm -hmm. all the way back to the the early days of the hugos when uh, science fiction novels were not published as books they were serialized in magazines Mm. So it, it's always been necessary to recognize that a work may be published in multiple parts. And it would be possible for the Hugo administrators to rule that what we have had last year is the first part of the third edition of the Science Fiction Encyclopedia, with the second part to be published this year. And consequently, by usual Hugo practice, the encyclopedia would only be eligible for the awards next year when all parts have been published. And yet, is that undermined by the fact that they've declared as part of their process, and in fact is one of the things that's positive about the whole thing going online, uh, that um, it's never complete. They're constantly changing it, and that there, there's some kind of mechanism that would allow them to actually create or, or, or specify sort of uh, def, you know, like additions as they go for uh, re reference work purposes. So, you know, sort of it's not like come October... Uh, the beta st sticker comes off, it's complete, there's a bazillion new words, and it'll be brilliant, but there are a bazillion new words, and then you go, well, that's it, because they're going to be adding, I mean, how many new words makes a new version of it 
for eligibility into the future as well. I mean, is there a percentage point? I mean, do you turn around and say, well, you know, when they won the Hugo in 1980, because it won the Hugo the first time out, mm-hmm. um, it was only, say, X long, and then it was three times as long when it won again in uh, 1990 or whatever it was. And now, or 1995, now that it comes out, it's coming out again, it's going to be triple the length again, that's great. But the, the year after that, it'll be 15% longer. And the year mm, after I'm that, it might be... I'm going to phone a friend, Jonathan. Sorry? I'm going to phone a friend. Oh, okay. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, we do have a special Cood Street podcast phone-a-friend condition now, where Cheryl can phone Kevin and Stanley. She can, also, she can also ask the audience to choose the best one out of three or something like that. <laughs> uh, however the audience will have have to respond on twitter yeah we we do have uh, an emergency holographic rules expert mr kevin stanley who is on standby with uh text messaging he's at work at the moment which is why he hasn't been able to join us um and i asked him whether there is an official percentage for a work to be counted as new and he says there is no official definition that it's entirely up to um, the voters and the administrators to decide whether a work is new or not. I think what it really comes down to in terms of practical matters is if enough people choose to nominate the uh, the third edition sure. as is, and it's not incomplete, and it's now not quite complete form, uh, then essentially the administrators of the Hugo Awards have no right to exclude it on that basis. If it's nominated, it's nominated. Fair enough. Um, though that does begin to also open the th- open that sort of question of multiple nominations for similar things. But no, it, it, it's kind of interesting. I mean, to me, the more interesting point, because I'm quite happy for the encyclopedia to be nominated and to win, I think the amount of work that's gone into it is staggering. And given the group of people involved, you know it's of the highest quality, so there's no question about that. But I honestly had never picked up, I guess, that you could nominate non-print works. And that's a really big thing to me, because that completely changes how I will approach this category when I nominate uh, in the next little while. Well, here's a question, mm. because you mentioned that the encyclopedia will eventually become an ongoing revision. My argument has always been that there will be a complete work when everything that was in the second edition is updated October of this year. Sure, sure, sure. You have already, you have websites like the Internet Science Fiction Database that have been ongoing, revising themselves year to year for years. Yes. Is that a work, according to this definition? I think it's something that you could nominate once, but people would, would then say, well, you know, it, it's only having minor revisions year on year, so it, it doesn't deserve to uh, mm-hmm. get anything added to it. So that would be the same criteria for disallowing the SF Encyclopedia in future years? Yeah. Ke- Kevin has just um, sent me the actual definition for best related work. Okay, excellent. It, oh, good. it includes the term substantially modified. Mm-hmm. Now, as he says, substantially modified is a judgment call of the voters and administrators, but mm-hmm. there is that word substantial. And mm-hmm. when you've already got well over three million words, you'd have to have a heck of a lot of words, I think, to qualify as substantial. Well, obviously, there's no doubt, and I don't think any person could reasonably argue that the difference between SFE2 and SF, SFE3 beta is a substantial change. Yeah, no question. I would even be willing to allow that probably the difference between SFA3 beta and SFA3 production will be a substantive, substantial change. Uh, so we could argue that it's 
reasonably eligible, in fact, for both years, both this year, you know, both for 2011 and for 2012. I think if I were an administrator, I wouldn't disqualify it. But I also think that uh, the voters will probably give it a Hugo this year and will decide not to next year. Okay, fair enough. Can or I decide to this year and decide to next year? It could go either yeah. way. Well, I mean, yeah, I'm yeah. Sure, look, that would be a worthy winner. There's no doubt. So, you know, I'm just it's, it's interesting. I will say, for what it's worth, I'm now going to declare my insane campaign, which I for best related work, which will not actually probably last much beyond this podcast, but nonetheless I feel enthusiastic about. And that's Mark R. Kelly for his Locus Awards database, which I think is a fantastic resource that I use all the time, and I know it's solely Mark working by himself. It takes a lot of work. It's a top quality resource on the internet, and I think it should be considered. My concern about that, Jonathan, is Mm -hmm. that it's not newly published. It's something that's been there a long time. And I think it would have to be substantially modified during the previous calendar year in order to be eligible. So the fact that people chose not, the fact it's never been nominated or discussed, partially because I think people never realized that it could be eligible, renders it ineligible. Um, Actually, it was first created before it became eligible. Mm. Mm. But my, my, my point is because people have, yeah, it, it's, it's because it's been overlooked in the past, it's effectively ineligible permanently. I'm, I'm afraid so, yes. Uh, it's pretty much the same as if um, you know, somebody produced an amazing book that was published only in you mm. know, New Zealand and nobody had heard of it. Um, and then the following, um, you know, they say, Five years later, it's suddenly picked up by a major U.S. publisher, and we say, "Oh, sorry, it's not eligible." That's interesting and disappointing. Oh, well. yeah, it's sad because Mark does a really wonderful job, but um, I I don't see any way that it would be eligible. Ah, uh, well, we should. Okay, I I might hold my campaign anyway and make those darn administrators make an opinion, make it make a ruling. <laughs> ah, take that, administrators. Ha. Oh, get get on with the campaign for Jeremy Lassen. I think that's well, much more. Of success. You, you, you know, you're going to ra- we're going to raise campaigns now before we move to questions. Uh, that is my other campaign, yes, uh, and I have stated it on my blog, I think, in a few places. And I do think, I mean, that there's a usual group of names that come up for editor long form or have been. Now, some of them have won and have now rendered themselves ineligible. Uh, David Hartwell, Patrick Nielsen Hayden, and there are other people who are enormously deserving. But I really think it would be easy to overlook Jeremy Lassen and the 12-month period he's had. I mean, really the Hugos, in, in, to my way of thinking, are for the work of the year in question. So what was done between 1st of January and the 31st of December of the year in question? That's how I look at it, whether or not it's the official definition or not. Now, Jeremy oversaw the public, you know, the editing of, I think, a dozen first novels uh, for Nightshade during 2011. And some very, very good ones, you know, Will McCarthy's first novel, Cameron Hurley's novels, a bunch mm-hmm. of Stina Light's novel, a bunch of others. I think he's someone who really should be considered uh, seriously for, for nomination. Uh, I mean, last year, my good friend and equally worthy um, candidate, Lou Anders, won and made me enormously happy to see him win that in Reno. Uh, I have to say, I'd be delighted to see Ginger Buchanan or Beth Meacham or any one of those fine people uh, win. But I'd love to see Jeffrey, Jeremy considered. I really would. 
I'd put in I... a word again for, for my good friend Mark Gascoigne of Angry Robot, um, who did, after all, win the World Fantasy Award for um, his editing there um, this uh, last yeah. year. Um, he's, he's continuing to do good work, although I think he really should have had the Hugo nod last year when um, everybody was getting excited about uh, Lauren Berkus. Yeah, um, as long as you were looking. Uh, this year, I, th I think Jeremy has done some really good stuff. I yeah. particularly love the Cameron Hurley books. And uh, God's War will be on my best novel ballot. Excellent. I think one of the things that, uh, that, that, that raises is an issue that you mentioned earlier, Jonathan, and that is you're dealing with a number of names that are widely unfamiliar to, I would guess, the majority of uh, Hugo voters. And in fact, if you followed my crazy amendment to the Hugos that no one will ever do, because I'm never even going to propose it seriously, Mark Gascoigne would have been up for the Hugo last year with Sioux City. Mm -hmm. There you go. See, I'm not all, all not all dumb. Mostly dumb, not all dumb. So anyway, Although okay. Actually, Zoo, Zoo City wasn't a Hugo nominee wasn't last it? year. Wasn't it? Okay, I thought, uh, I don't think it was. Lauren was a, a nominee for the Campbell. She was nominated uh, for everything. Had it on the shortlist for the Crawford, didn't? See, this is the, the this is the, the, the subject we're not getting into too much, and we won't, I don't think. And that is what we think should be nominated, which is another whole fun discussion. But this is really, I guess, more about the, uh, the functioning process. of these things. Now. There are questions, and I have been batting them towards the back of the podcast. So what do we have that we haven't addressed yet? Oh, dear. We had a question from Kev McVeigh who says, where do you get the energy for everything you seem to do? Who? And Ooh, I think that was addressed to me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Cheryl, uh, what, 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 what pharmaceuticals are you taking to assist you through the week? <laughs> still staring at my glass of turbo, which I haven't completely consumed yet. <laughs> but uh, the answer is I really have no idea. I, I just wish I had more energy because there's so much more to do. Fair enough. That's that's a, a good answer. Uh, uh, let's see, we... Um, we also have um, my my friends here in the west of England are uh, are keen that uh, they should all get a name check. So I should say something good about BristolCon, which mm -hmm. is a wonderful convention. Yep, it's um, grown mm -hmm. rapidly from I think around sixty people in the first year, one hundred and fifty in the second, two hundred and fifty in the third. Wow. So we're 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 doing quite well for ourselves, and we have some um, some fine up and coming writers. Um, there's. Uh, uh, Gareth L. Powell, whose novel The Recollection has been getting a lot of uh, interest uh, in the UK, and also Tim Morn, whose uh, short fiction collection um, has uh, got a, a rave review from uh, Cory Doctorow on Boing Boing, and that's a book called Paintwork, yeah. which you can buy from my online ebook store. Uh -huh. and, and, and does BristolCon have a website, Cheryl? Ah, uh, it does indeed. Is it bristolcon.org, Cheryl? <laughs> I think it might be. You should, I should know that because I'm the person responsible for maintaining it. And it is indeed bristolcon.org. I think that was near seamless advertising, Cheryl. That was magnificent. <laughs> I just have to make a parenthetical note about uh, an amusing tweet we have from Paul Graham Raven, which is not relevant to our discussion, and he knows it's not. Where do you get your ideas and will you read my novel? And I just, I wish I were a novelist because my answer would be, yes, I'll read your unpublished novel because that's where I get all my ideas. <laughs> unpublished writers remain in obscurity forever. Surely every unpublished novelist knows that's where published novelists get their ideas. Of course they do. 
That's why unpublished novelists start teaching writers' workshops, so they can read other unpublished novelists' novels. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Any other questions, Cheryl? Oh, um, I'm just having a quick look through to see if... Um, no, I, I don't okay, think so. Fair enough, because we've put that very much last uh-huh. minute. Well, I guess then that kind of does that does, does that sort of bring to a close our discussion of the Hugos itself for the moment? It, I think, it brings to a close our discussion of Hugos. I'm not sure that it brings to a to a close our discussion of awards. Well, there is another thing. Which are you guys like collaborating on this or something? There, there is another t- topic we're going to discuss, and this isn't sort of the same kind of very very well intentioned but clumsy advertising we just did it a minute ago. Um, tell us about this other award that you're involved with collaborative podcast people this is the president okay one of the things that uh, actually cheryl is, is is the guiding force behind this well then maybe she I, should talk about it uh, well, yeah. I'll, 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 I'll introduce cheryl talking about it because i thought it, we a number of us thought it was an excellent idea one of the issues that we've noticed uh over the years is that non-english language science fiction or any science fiction translated from one language to another tends to disappear. I think uh, at some point, Cheryl, back in the beginning of this, we looked up, uh, or I looked up, or somebody looked up, the the number of nominations for World Fantasy Awards or Science Fiction Awards that have been translated works. As far as I can, as far as I could tell, Patrick Susskind's Perfumed was was the only, no, um, was one of two or three of novels. I think it was the only one ever to win a World Fantasy Award when translated from another language. Mm-hmm. There are lots of problems with translations. They're expensive to do. Sure. They're not easily marketable. Uh, we've had uh, any number of, 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 of important writers who remained invisible, or all, all but invisible, to the English-speaking community, from sure. um, Andreas Esbach to Johanna Sinasalo. And Cheryl's idea was that we should recognize science fiction and fantasy in translation. So, Cheryl, I will turn it over to you now. Alrighty, so I had this mad idea, and I realized straight away that um, you know I, I just couldn't like have an award of my own. What I needed to have was a bunch of you know, respectable expert people who could have an award. Um, so I persuaded a bunch of other people to do most of the work for me, um, and Gary kindly agreed to be president of the uh, uh, non-profit organization that would run this. We're also getting a lot of assistance from some uh, fine people at the University of California, Riverside, um, Sir uh, Rob Latham and Melissa Conway. And hopefully yes. Nala Hopkinson will be getting involved a little bit now that she's uh, working there. Um, and, uh, of course, our, um, our emergency holographic rules expert, Mr. Kevin Stanley, in addition to knowing everything there is to know about the Hugos, also knows everything there is to know about running a California-based nonprofit. So he's handled all of the uh, the legal and, and oh, business side, the whole thing. Um, and um, you know, last year the awards were presented for the first time. Um, some uh, very fine uh, French short stories, um, uh, which uh, a collection thereof won the uh, the long form award. Um, and uh, that was uh, Georges Olivier Chateauino. Mm-hmm. The author and Edward Govan, the the translator, and um, if you just give me a minute, I will sure. look up the name of the book because I've forgotten it. The short form was won by a Finnish writer Hanu Rahiniemi um, for um, 
a short story he had published in um, Subterranean. Yeah. And uh, uh, so uh, Elegy for a Young Elk. Elegy for a Young Elk, yes. And the long-form winner, A Life on Paper, colon, Stories. Um, so those were um, our, our two winners from last year, and we now have a, a jury busily working on finding winners for next year. And uh, the important point about these, these awards is that we try hard to give money to the winners. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's partly, of course, because people who are his stories are being translated, they don't get the big sales in this country. So it'd be nice for them to, to get a little bit of money. But most importantly, translators are really poorly paid. Yeah. And so the awards have a policy of equally rewarding both the original author and the translator. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, uh, it's great that uh, the translators can actually get a little bit of extra money for what they do. Now, in order to get this money, of course, we have to uh, reach out to the science fiction and fantasy community and ask them to donate stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and to encourage them to do so, we're having a, a prize draw. We did this last year where several generous authors donated some prizes, which were won by people from all around the world. And we're doing the same thing this year. Yeah. And uh, the uh, the post has just gone up on the website with the list of the prizes that are available thus far. And there are some uh, remarkably fine things on there. Excellent. Yeah. I think part of yeah, uh, uh, we're we're largely trying to encourage. Um, I would say English in America and Australian readers to pay attention to uh, works that are very difficult to publish, and, and frequently these come up from small presses. Mm-hmm. Interesting thing I got in the mail, and Cheryl, I haven't mentioned this to you, I got in the mail this week, there's a new translation of Roadside Picnic, which is coming out in May from the Chicago Review Press, not what we would consider normally a genre press, um, with an introduction by Ursula Le Guin. Oh, cool. Um, can, can I interject and ask you an eligibility question that I think will be on the minds of some of our listeners? Because you know, and it may occur to me just because I'm not um, actively involved. And the question is this. Is the translation what's eligible or is it the work? The reason I ask is, you know, is, is it eligibility based on the publication date of a specific translation or is it based on uh, the publication date of the original work? Um, because, for example, yes. that would mean that, say, a brand new translation of Jules Verne could be eligible for this award. That's absolutely correct. And we have a very good example of that in the nominees this year. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Solaris by Stanislav Lem um, was available in translation many, many years ago. Um, the, uh, the view of most people was that the translation wasn't terribly good. And a new translation has just been made available. Interestingly, it's available only as an audio book. Mm-hmm. So and one of the a footnote to that to those of our listeners, if I'm not mistaken, those of our listeners who think they've read Solaris, I believe the earlier translations were actually made from the French translation rather than directly from the Polish. Okay, that is correct. Yes, that's the story I've heard as well. Which means that for the first time you can read, you can, well, you can't read, you can listen to Solaris in its first Polish to English translation. Cool. Um, and, and Jonathan, in terms of Jules Verne, uh, Wesleyan University Press has not had a great deal of uh, success, I think, but they uh, have been doing a series of new translations of Verne, 
Uh, I read a few of those. Some of these are novels that have not been translated. Some of these are novels that are lesser known, like The Mighty Orinoco. And one of the things that I learned from reading those is that Verne is a much better writer than I thought he was from reading those things I read when I was a kid. Yeah. Uh, Verne's translation. Well, the, the, um, uh, the, the, some the, funny the, translation. I'm sorry. sorry. No, okay. I was just going to mention something. <laughs> okay. Gary. Yes, the funny Talk. story. <laughs> I'm just going to leave it to you guys for a minute. <laughs> Silence while we're all being polite. Sorry. The characters are extremely rude about the British, as French people often are. Um, uh-huh. We, of course, are extremely rude about them every so often as well. It's um, a relationship that we've had across that little stretch of water for many centuries. Um, but, of course, when it was translated into English for uh, sale here, they couldn't possibly include any of those insults about the British, so they removed them all. And it wasn't until fairly recently that... Uh, uh, a decent translation of uh, of the book was published, which included all of uh, what Mr. Verne wanted to say about the dastardly British. <laughs> well, let me ask you the most important question, I think, about awards, or one of the most important questions. And that is, what may, gets, gets me most interested about an award is when I can become involved. Yeah, you know, it's like I can be involved in the Hugos. I can show up at the business meeting and affect the rules. I can nominate. I can vote. I can go to the ceremony. Um, I can be involved in the Royal Fantasy Awards. I can nominate for those. All kinds of ways of getting involved. How does somebody who thinks that the Science Fiction Fantasy Translation Awards at sffttawards.org is something they can get involved with? Because, I mean, are, are nominations still open? Could I nominate a translation, translated work that I'm aware of or make, make Rob Latham and everybody at uh, jury at sfttawards.org aware of it now? Or are they closed? Is there some other uh, way to nomination, Nominations are closed for this year um, because the jury really needs to get on and, and make some decisions so that we can actually announce the awards in, in due time. But one of the things that occurred to us when we were setting up these awards is that translations are often published by very small presses and we may not get to hear of them. Um, indeed, you know, shortly, I think it was only two days after we closed the nomination, we heard of... Uh, a couple of stories that have been translated, um, uh, stories from a Mexican writer that have been translated from Spanish. So we deliberately adopted a rule when the awards were created that if we missed something in the previous year, it could be rolled forward into the, the following year. Yeah. So you, got, you guys know that Small Beer are doing an entire anthology of translated Mexican and Spanish science fiction fantasy, don't you? That, that's wonderful. And, and the Vandermeers have um, published a couple of anthologies containing a, a large amount of translated fiction. So. Excellent. Mm. So, okay. So how can I be involved? I mean, uh, let me let me put some words in your mouth. I can go to your website and I can donate to support the cause. I can go to the website and I can bid for some of these wonderful prizes or something, can I? Or what's the, what's um, the deal? It's, uh, it's a prize draw. So everybody who donates money um, gets a, a chance of winning one of the prizes. Okay. Um, and uh, by uh, um, Californian law, also you're uh, you're able to enter the thing by not donating anything. Sure. And so there's there's a mechanism for that. Just look up the awards rules. Yeah, but don't do that. So yes, uh, money is money yeah. is always um, appreciated sure. because we want to give that money to the authors and translators. Um, there are other ways in which people can get involved. Uh, the obvious one is telling us about translated sure. work because it's very hard to keep track of it all. 
And in addition to that, if anybody really wants to get involved, we really could do with some more people to, to work on it. Um, you know, Kevin and I have both gone through some pretty rough times with uh, our financial situations in the, the past year. The, um, the folks at Riverside, um, they have their busy academic lives. Gary, uh, as, as you well know, has um, many, many things he's involved in, including producing a weekly podcast. <laughs> oh, look, it's not that much work, is it, Gary? No, but we could have it translated into English. <laughs> From the Australian. I can't imagine yes, exactly. how you could do that. I really don't have any idea how you could make this. Well, I think it's a great and a worthy thing. I think it's really cool. I think everybody should get involved and check it out and... Uh, when is the when will the winners be announced? When where, um, we're, where we're trying not to put too much pressure on the uh, the jury because you know it, it's an important and difficult sure. job uh, deciding what they're going to do. Last year we announced the winners at the Eurocon in Stockholm. Um, this year Eurocon is a little bit earlier. It's at the end of of April in Zagreb. Mm-hmm. It's possible that we will announce the winners there. If we don't do it there, it will probably happen at FinCon in July. Okay. Well, uh, I think what we should do is please keep, the, you know, the Cood Street podcast apprised of what's happening with the translation awards because I think they sound terrific. Um, maybe we could set something up to talk about it when the um, results are known. Maybe we could even—I don't know—if it would be practically possible to talk to the the winners. That would be interesting. It certainly would, yes. So, well, well, on that cheery note, whilst I don't believe we've rambled, we are getting towards the natural length of this thing. So maybe we should begin to give some thought to wrapping up our semi-annual discussion of, well, in fact, our, our fortnightly discussion of awards. <laughs> and, and and let us all get back, because it must be getting late where you are, sure. It must be like one o'clock in the morning or something. Um, it, it's, um, it's gone midnight where I am, but uh, I, I'm in training at the moment. It, it's playoff season in the American football uh, and, uh, the, uh, the conference championships are, are being held on Sunday. The 49ers game does not kick off until 1130 in the evening, my time. So that, that's going to be a very late night. It will indeed. And this uh, is I'm from out, your, old, your old stomping grounds there. I still have many for the San Francisco team so i have lots of friends who are affiliated one way or the other with the san francisco scene including cecilia holland who are going to be watching this as avidly as you are yeah well i hope your team goes well i mean obviously not in the cricket because that's not happening uh but (laughs) elsewhere and thank you very very much for joining us it's been a pleasure as always good to have you back on the podcast it's been wonderful being on here, John. I do love talking to you and Gary. And uh, as I, I don't see you at conventions as often as I would like these days. Uh, I'm delighted to be able to uh, to talk to you in this way. It's been a pleasure. Uh, and I will try very hard not to be rude about the Australian cricket team because you set your stick on me. Well, no, no. It's anything you've got to say is absolutely merited and fine. I've got no problem. Well, the two of you could explain to me on a future podcast. All of the ins and outs of cricket, because I've watched you tweeting about it. I watched one cricket. <laughs> and I'm, I'm having a difficult time, as many Americans do, distinguishing between watching a cricket match and watching nothing. Ah, uh, well. Just goes to show what you know, Gary. That's all right, though. <laughs> on, all that, on that cheery note, lovely talking to you, Cheryl. Talk to you next week, Gary. 
Oh, do you know? Good night, Jonathan. Okay. Good night, Gary. Okay.